Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, the Twin Peaks podcast. Today we are here to talk about part 15 of Twin Peaks The Return. There's some fear in letting go. My name is Nick. I am joined, of course, by Dylan. How are you, Dylan? Not bad, man. How are you doing? I am very well. And today we are very happy to be joined by... Andrew Grievous, the founder of 25 Years Later. Last week, we were joined by John Bernardi, who is a writer and editor for the website. Uh, so we thought it would be good to uh, just keep it in the 25 Years Later family. And uh, we're really happy that Andrew decided to join us. Thanks for being on with us, man. I really appreciate you guys extending the offer. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, us too, especially because this episode is just a, a, a doozy. Boy, is it good. I definitely consider this to be one of my favorite hours out of all 18, so I'm, I'm really excited that you got asked me for this one in particular. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've we've mentioned a, a couple times on the show that we're really in the sweet spot of the season now, where it's like pretty much every episode is just going to get more and more amazing until, until until it ends so um yeah we we are really we are really in the uh in, in the zone here um so yeah if you're reading this or listening to this rather you're probably aware of of uh 25 years later um but andrew why don't you just give people who aren't familiar a little rundown of the site uh, what you guys do there, as well as um, who you are and your own history with Twin Peaks. So starting with my history with Twin Peaks, I am an original fan from the early 90s. I started watching the show with my parents at way too young of an age, which, as you can imagine, definitely traumatizes a child and explains why I'm still talking about it all these years <laughs> later. Wow. Um, <laughs> Personal history aside, I wanted to do a cool creative project like so many people when Twin Peaks came back, and my thing, I've always been a writer, so that's where the idea came from. At first, it was just going to be me writing a few cool little articles about the show, and next thing I knew, more and more people kept wanting to join, and a full-fledged website was born out of it. And now we're almost two years later, and not only do we have all of our Twin Peaks content, but we cover a variety of television and film. And we always tell people that the Twin Peaks community is very tight-knit, and they're used to a certain level of analysis and discussion. And we're kind of taking that to all qualities TV and film. So it's been a blast. Yeah, highly recommend anybody go check out 25 Years Later. Uh, Like you mentioned, there is... Uh, a wealth of stuff on there, not just related to Twin Peaks, but also uh, a pretty wide variety of, of television shows now, uh, which is pretty cool. And um, they, they have a lot of good writers over there. So, Thank you for uh, your yeah. kind words. Mm-hmm. So you said you were pretty young when you started watching Twin Peaks. How young were you exactly? I was five years old when the pilot aired. Holy crap. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I remember the commercials, uh, particularly there was one that said Twin Peaks. It's a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to die there. 
and I remember being terrified of that commercial. But the night that the pilot aired, my mom was watching it, and I somehow worked my way into the room, and she let me sit there on the couch with her. And it kind of just became this thing where, obviously, I didn't understand everything that was happening. I mean, we all know how layered the the story was. But a lot of the visual stuff really stuck with me throughout the years. And I wound up watching the entire series with my mom uh, up until the very end of season two. I did not watch Fire Walk with me until I was 18, though. I was pretty traumatized by the season two finale. Mm. Yeah, I can only imagine how a kid that young would even begin to process Twin Peaks. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, it uh, definitely explains a lot about my psychology, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm glad that you didn't watch Firewalk with me when you were six or seven or whatever it was. Oh, yeah, um, like I said, the season two finale did a number on me. Um, those mental images stayed with me for years. But when I was 18, I finally did kind of work up the courage to finally conquer my childhood fear and watch Firewalk with me. And I'm 34 now. It's been off to the races since I was 18. Yeah. Awesome. So I guess we should uh, just get down to business and uh, talk about this episode. So uh, let's do it. Part 15. There's some fear in letting go. Who is Judy? You've already met Judy. What do you mean I've met Judy? So this episode opens with great shot of Nadine walking down the highway here towards Big Ed's gas farm. Dr. Amp's golden shovel in hand. And uh, this is actually one of the images that had leaked prior to the season, uh, if I recall correctly. There's a lot of speculation about uh, what Nadine would be doing with the shovel, whose who's body is she burying, etc., <laughs> yeah, I remember all that. It's yeah, coming back to me. Yeah, of course. Um, the the uh, the real answer ended up being far stranger than than any of us could have anticipated. But uh, yeah, so she goes and she meets with Big Ed, and she goes on this pretty long, pretty self flagellating spiel about how. She's been a selfish bitch, and he's been a saint, and, and all this sort of thing, and how she's ready to, to set him free and, and let him go. And uh, Ed is, he, he has a hunch that this has something to do with uh, Dr. Jacoby, a.k.a. Dr. Amp, uh, which she, she pretty much confirms. And, uh, you know, Ed is, he reacts to this, he seems shocked but he's but he's not so ready to just drop everything and get to normal right away. He sort of asks her to think about it for a little while, you know, which I think just kind of speaks to the kind of guy that that Ed is. You know, he's thinking like Nadine's probably going to regret this, but Nadine seems pretty confident that this is what she wants. And um yeah, so she she tells Ed like, you know, go be free. 
what, what were your guys' reactions to seeing this for the first time? Joy, elation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I absolutely like just love the the Big Ed and Norma uh, side plot. And when I saw Nadine walking up with that shovel in hand, I too thought like, oh boy, what's going to happen? But I, um, I also think it's, it's, there's a, maybe a funny subtext in there that, um, if you watch shows like Dr. Amp for long enough, you'll eventually uh, drink the Kool-Aid and divorce your spouse and, uh, go down this, uh, like total, like she has like a whole, uh, realization, uh, that I think is kind of silly and, and funny, but I, I ultimately love it because of what it leads to and how, um, the following scene in the double R is, I think I'd be safe to say, if not like my favorite of the return, it is the one that I like look forward to the most or have been looking forward to the most on the rewatch because it, it has like a, such a purity to it and Otis Redding as well. Mm-hmm. I know for me, there was a sense of skepticism in the first part with Nadine. Uh, and it kind of jogged back a season two memory of, I mean, we remember the storyline where we thought Ed and Norma were getting together only to have that foiled in the season two finale. Mm-hmm. And part of me felt like, oh, this is a false start and we're headed for more Ed and Norma heartbreak. And I don't think I really thought to myself like, oh, this is actually happening until the Otis Redding music kicked in in the Double R Diner. And then it was like, oh, hang on, maybe we really are getting this. Yeah, I had a similar reaction as you, Andrew, just because this season really was a season of false starts. And it just seemed to me that there was no way that it was going to be this easy for Ed. And, um, you know, it's it's not often that this show just gives you a, you know, throws the old fans a bone, I guess you could say. Uh, in quite this overt a way, but man, this whole thing at the double R with Ed and Norma is just so successful, in my opinion. Like, it is really just uh, an incredibly beautiful and satisfying moment. Yeah, and like you mentioned, Dylan, we get just a great live version of Otis Redding's I've Been Loving You Too Long, which is, I believe, a recording from the monterey pop festival and Indeed it is yeah and um it's it's incredible uh, obviously and david lynch has talked about how he just uh you know was just absolutely floored by this rendition and how it, it makes him cry like a baby uh etc um you know and and guess what i'm crying too because uh ed and norma are together and this is a really amazing scene for a lot of reasons not least of all it's it's remarkable that we get a scene like this, this very romantic scene between two characters that are a bit older. I mean, I don't know how often you really get to see a moment like this between two characters that are you know, above, above 70 that is so lavishly staged. I, I can't really think of another example like that, right? No, I can't either. And or at least one that is playing with the real time 25, 26 year gap, like since you were introduced to these characters and since their love affair was was put on the screen, it took that long in real time to, for this to happen on the screen as well. So 
I think it really it really makes for such like a an incredibly powerful moment. Uh, one that like you're saying, Nick is is for sure an outlier, especially in this season. Uh, we just we just get like a purely unadulterated, beautiful moment, and um, yeah, it it the the and it toys with you a bit too, of course, because once um once Walter walks in and you see his face. You get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, oh my God, no, it's not going to work right. out. Time, things have moved, things have moved on. It's too late for Big Ed. Um, it's just a wonderfully, wonderfully executed scene, and the payoff is just huge. I'm going to echo the sentiment that this was one of my favorite parts of the entire 18 hours. Uh, Twin Peaks: The Return is not exactly known for happy endings. It's not really known for these joyous moments and emotional closure. And we got that here. We got a sense of nostalgia just in terms of the relationship itself. We got nostalgic feelings and wanting them to be together. And it was a it was a very warm, beautiful moment. But how perfectly it was played just to get back to what you were talking about we got the fake out with walter then we got ed sitting there in the meditative state and when norma's hand hits ed's shoulder it's just over from that point emotionally david lynch and mark frost really did throw us for a loop but to kind of pick up on the previous point hollywood is kind of known for ageism in a lot of ways and that's something that Kimmy Robertson and I discussed in my interview with her how grateful she was that David Lynch and Mark Frost are not ashamed to cast older actors and to put older actors in situations that the rest of Hollywood won't and to me this almost felt like a bit of a meta commentary on that here we are putting two actors in their what late 60s early 70s in this very genuine romantic moment that like like you said earlier you don't see in many other shows or films and Lynch and Frost don't play by those Hollywood rules and this was a prime example of what can happen when you don't play by those rules a truly beautiful moment that none of us will ever forget yeah it's amazing and you're right the the fake out is so effective because not only do we see Norma go off with Walter but the the soundtrack actually cuts out for a little bit you know, mm-hmm. uh, the song the song fades away, and we're uh, you know our our heart sinks for Ed, and you know he's at the diner ordering a cyanide tablet, <laughs> and um, <laughs> right, yeah, he 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 sits there, and and we hear Norma essentially breaking off her her business dealings, and uh, apparently her romantic relationship with uh, this sort of sort of cheesy business guy Walter. And we see Ed doing what looks to me like a bit of uh, transcendental meditation, perhaps, uh, to keep it on brand for Lynch. It's almost like he uh, transcendentally meditated Walter out of Norma's life. And uh, I, at this moment, I, just when Norma's hand appears in the frame, I mean, just such a, just such a masterful bit of direction here from Lynch. And um, boy, the way that this whole ending sequence right here is edited i think is really really outstanding too i love we cut from the kissing the kissing moment and him proposing to her to uh you know these establishing shots of the double r and we see like the mountains towering behind it and we get the shot pointing upward at the clouds swirling in the sky and oh it is it is just man it's 
Dave Lynch is a good director is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of symbolism in those establishing shots there. You know, the, the lightness of the clouds and the sky. So much of the establishing shots, not only in the return, but in previous incarnations of Twin Peaks, were ominous. And here we are seeing pretty clouds in the sky. We're seeing beautiful scenery here. And we didn't know it was an ending for these characters at the time, but looking back on it now, having seen the entire return, it, it's perfect. And it does give you that feeling that long after the story ends, that Ed and Norma really did have that happily ever after. Yeah, that's what I got from it too. It's you get this this finality, uh, this these sort of very evocative shots that will that can say much more than than dialogue ever could about sort of uh, the nature of this of this relationship and it is like probably the only true like happily ever after moment that we get in the return and i i love actually how it's juxtaposed in terms of establishing shots with what we get directly after which is uh the complete opposite which i, I just think is uh is is just it works so well yeah yeah, and this this trick of ending a scene with an establishing shot is is one that actually comes up quite a few times in this episode. It's it, to me, it's just like an effective way of putting a button on a scene and and uh, making us think about everything that we've just seen in this location. I don't know. It's just like something that I noticed uh, happens quite a few times in this episode. Um, but yeah, you're 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 right, Dylan. Um, after this incredibly emotional, uh, heart wrenching moment, any notion of sentimentality or goodness is immediately pushed as far from our minds as possible. As we check in with Mister C, and we get that opening shot of the the power lines, which I believe is the same shot that Andy saw in the last episode when he yep. goes and, and pays a visit to the fireman. And we get David Lynch's favorite shot, which is the dark winding lost highway Mohol and drive esque shot here, which is, uh, is always a sign that uh, things are about to go horribly wrong. <laughs> But yeah, and so Mr. C approaches the convenience store, which is kind of a shocking moment because we haven't seen this apart from part eight, and we couldn't even be certain that it's like a real physical place at all. So when he just pulls up to it, it's kind of like, wow, okay, all right, <laughs> I guess we're really doing yeah, this. Yeah, that was a jarring moment. It was really, it was really jarring because like, I too was thinking that that was some sort of metaphysical place that maybe existed in lodge space, and then when he just straight up drives right up to it, pulls in, I was like, "Holy shit!" I couldn't believe it. Boy, yeah, these scenes are are really effective, not least of all because we get a return of the Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima that we heard in mm -hmm. part eight. Um, a slightly different part, but it's still the same sort of like creepy, dissonant string action here uh, that serves that serves as a really effective underpinning for for what this this scene is. Um, so yeah, lots of I kind of want to take this step by step because there's a lot going on with this whole sequence even before he gets to Jeffrey's. Like we see Mister C walk up the stairs and then just disappear um 
obviously making us think about the room above the convenience store, which is very, uh, very literalized in this case. And uh, he walks into this room with this dark floral wallpaper, which is the same. It appears to be the same room that Laura Palmer visits by entering the framed photo given to her by uh, Mrs. Tremont. And basically, Mr. C tells this woodsman that's sitting here that he wants to meet with Jeffries. And the woodsman pulls on this lever that causes a bright flash of electricity to occur. And, um, you know, just more with the electricity, more with electricity serving as a conduit you know, between these these lodge spaces, these supernatural realms that we just we see again and again in the show. I don't know this yeah. this whole sequence right here is just um, I don't know. It, for for some reason, it's just it gives me the chills every time, just because it's such a. Um, I don't know. It's like we've been waiting for so long to see what Mister C is up to. Uh, and what he wants, and to see him finally, you know, enter, you know, the the, the world of the uh, the metaphysical, it's it's kind of it's kind of jarring and amazing. Yeah, I, I agree. And the sense that I get from Mister C's demeanor is that he is a bit cautious and a bit maybe confused as well, and that doesn't bode well with me because of how how in control he typically is, and to see a, a character like that. Uh, taking care to to not make a wrong step it seems uh makes me feel on edge just being in this in this space but the uh, i i i also agree that we've been waiting so long to see what this is going to be like and i don't think it disappoints really i think that it really does like with certain shows when you get a a a payoff in terms of like either a, a reveal or some sort of plot forward or moving the plot moving forward there's almost like a sense of like loss for for like the mystery that you had whereas that's never the case in this show because whenever you get something like this it immediately raises a whole lot more questions that i i get the feeling we're all about to ask <laughs> but uh one, one thing that i i noticed right like that popped up into my head is the switch that buzzes with electricity and like you said this acts as like a conduit between spaces um makes me think of Nido back in part three where she pulls the switch and the buzz thing, thing goes off and she flies off into nothingness and ends up in Twin Peaks at Jack Rabbit's Palace uh, all those episodes later. So it's an interesting, um, it's just a very evocative little little tool. But the thing that gets me is is the shot of Jumping Man, apparently with Sarah Palmer's face superimposed over its mm-hmm which I think is extremely, it scared the hell out of me. It was like one of the first, I think the only jump scares um, that got to me, like my first time watching it, I did not see it coming. And I was also extremely psyched to see Jumping Man just because it's such a creepy, (laughs) creepy image. Our old pal, the Jumping Man. Oh yeah. Feel good, pal. (laughs) Um, And yeah, as far as like the significance of seeing Sarah's face on it, it's, pretty much just confirming what we already have intuited, which is that Sarah is somehow being influenced or even possessed by or is some way under the thumb of these dark lodge forces. Um, and 
it's it is pretty subtle like you kind of have to pause it and slow it down to really notice it but it definitely is sarah like without question oh yeah yeah i guess it was more of are we do we are we to believe that that mr c was shown this or is this just some sort of uh some image for us the viewer that's what was unclear to me i don't know it always seemed to me like mr c's presence in this space is like just causing the jumping man to go haywire like Uh. he's just it's uh his presence in there has just sort of uh awakened the jumping man in some way but i don't know and you're right it is very abrupt like we just see mr c just kind of walking through and it's very slow and it's very still and then it is a very abrupt cut to uh to the jumping man yeah i was equally as excited to see the jumping man you know he's definitely one of those characters that so much mystique surrounds him throughout the entire twin peaks narrative to kind of backtrack a little bit to the entrance into this space i remember the first night that i watched this episode drawing that comparison between glastonbury grove and where mr c drove up like you you had to know where you're going to enter this lodge space and I remember my first thought was the lodge is so much bigger and so much more um, spread out than I had previously thought, especially when we see the, the bosomy woman, I believe she's credited as, that mm-hmm. speaks backwards. That kind of that threw me for a loop. Like, okay, so mm-hmm. what we had previously thought to be lodge space is probably just a fraction of what there really is. And that's one of the things that season three really threw me for a loop for. What we thought we knew was perhaps just a fraction of all of this. Um, that was one of my big takeaways from the scene. I don't think that we as an... I think the, the jumping man was more for we as an audience rather than Mr. C. I never got the impression that uh, his uh, the jumping man's appearance was meant to be seen by Evil Cooper. I thought that was more just for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he's not actually seen by Mr. C., which is which is worth noting. Like it, you're right. It is, it is just a sort of a signal for for us as an audience. Um, but I'm I'm glad you mentioned Glastonbury Grove because I immediately thought of of Glastonbury Grove during this long walk down the hallway here that Mr. C has, where we see the image of the forest superimposed over over this whole sequence here. Like it just. The trees definitely mm-hmm. reminded me of a uh, of a Glastonbury Grove, and I think we're I think we're probably meant to draw that connection. Yeah, I also think that it's it's serving to maybe remind us that a lot of this stuff is happening sort of like parallel to to our existence and a lot of the mythology that we get, even as far back as the first season about the woods of uh, surrounding Twin Peaks and and all of the the mystery there. Um, that these spaces are sort of like overlapped the same way that you, you know, you see in Glastonbury Grove with the, the curtains uh, double exposed against the, the forest. And I also just love the, I love the effect of them walking further down the hallway and the shot taking you deeper and deeper into the, the woods. Uh, and it lingers a lot longer than, than I th- had originally thought. Like, as, even all, as they turn the corner and go, start to go up the stairs, there's still a little bit of double exposure there. Um, it really it, it lets you sit with that for a while. And it was, to me, just kind of like a mesmerizing effect of you're, you're traveling deeper and deeper into the unknown. And a lot of these um, mysteries that you've been hearing about for such a, a very long time, you're, you're finally about to 
at least witness them. <laughs> and that was really exciting for me. This scene, I'm sorry, this scene definitely makes me think about the infamous poem that we've heard from day one, particularly the line between two worlds. I've always been a big proponent of the fact that the magicians and the one-armed man, however you choose to name him, Philip or Mike, and I know the credits leads us to a bigger debate on that one there, but I'll just call him for the one-armed man for simplicity's sake. I've always felt that he was able to navigate between two worlds, and this setting here seemed to me as if it were some in-between space where perhaps characters like Philip Jeffries permanently exist. You know, they are no longer part of our plane, what we define as normal, our reality, and they're not completely in lodge space either. And here we're seeing what happens when you're kind of in that in-between realm where characters such as the woodsmen are almost seem to be guardians of this space. Mr. C didn't belong there. He was a visitor. He was granted access to the space so he could get a little bit of information. He was knowledgeable enough about this greater system, uh, what we refer to as mythology, but he wasn't important enough to belong there. And it really gets the gears turning about the bigger mythological questions in this series. So absolutely one of my favorite scenes throughout the entire season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I have the same read on it as well as far as this space being sort of an in-between realm. Um, you know, we, we know that Bill Hastings had had some encounters in this space as well with Major Briggs. Um, and this, this staircase that we're about to see here is, uh, I believe, the same, the same staircase that Gordon Cole sees when he's peering up into the portal in the zone. So clearly it's possible for people with, with special knowledge to traverse this space without necessarily uh, being a, a lodge being. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think you're you're um, also spot on about Mike, aka Philip, aka the one our man here, because he does seem to possess an ability to, um, if not just directly float in and out of these spaces, he at least is able to exert his influence. Like we see in the next episode, he's able to reach through. Uh, the red room and, and hand Cooper the alcave ring in, you know in a physical space and then after that he's able to meet Cooper in this sort of debatably <laughs> real space uh, at the Great Northern uh, there uh, where, where he recites his firewalk with me poem but yeah it, it's it really is an amazing sequence just full of foreboding here and he makes his way to Jeffries and. This scene here, I think, is sort of similar to the Ray Monroe scene uh, from a couple episodes uh, that Dylan and I painfully and uh, exhaustingly pulled apart. <laughs> and uh, in that it it simultaneously illuminates some things, but it's also like the most confusing thing that's ever been on a TV screen. Um it's it's to me the big takeaway here for me personally is that Jeffries is not necessarily a reliable source of information. I think that he is a being that is sort of um, stuck between between uh, timelines here 
or stuck between realities i i think that he is himself confused exactly about what's going on because a lot of mr c's line of questioning here seems to confuse him you know like um i'm not sure he even knows who mr c is like when he says oh you are cooper um and and just all his mr c's questions about ray and and all this sort of stuff he doesn't to me he seems like he seems like somebody who's a a bit lost in pretty much every sense not least of all uh physically because he is now a giant machine that emits steam (laughs) yeah it, it begs the question for me like what is his actual role is he like is he some sort of prisoner because he is in a locked room or it, is he in some sort of position of power or are those completely irrelevant uh, ways of looking at it? It's just sort of like a, it, it takes a, a sort of like a, a, a character that you have a muddy understanding of in the first place and continues to obfuscate and uh, sort of poke, at least for me, poke holes in any theories that I had about who or what Philip Jeffries is presently. Um, but yeah, it does seem, it does seem as if Philip Jeffries is put off by, by Mr. C and, um, the, his line of questioning is it, it's similar to, uh, or well, I'm saying that I should say Philip's response is similar to Gordon Cole and Albert kind of not really remembering the incident in the Philadelphia office, uh, kind of feels like you get the same thing from this Philip Jeffries here where he, uh, where he says, who is Judy? Um, and you get that flashback to it uh, almost as if that entity and this entity are not exactly the same thing anymore. But uh, as always leaves, leaves me with more questions than answers. This scene is really when I began my theory that Philip Jeffries was more of a cautionary tale for Agent Cooper than anything. Their stories are very similar in the fact that Jeffries began chasing in the late 80s a case, a Blue Rose case, that took him to places that he knew little about but was very curious. And that's the same road that we've seen Agent Cooper on all throughout the show. He was a curious man. He was a man who felt confident in his abilities to do things that kind of defied rational explanation. But look where Philip Jeffries wound up. You know, he is confused. He is not all-knowing. There's a Wizard of Oz analogy here. Uh, We assume that he is all-knowing and powerful prior to this scene, but as you guys have said, he's not all-knowing. He did not have all the answers that we expected him to, and that's when I started to think, oh, hang on, could this be Cooper's fate if he continues on the journey that he's on? Yeah, definitely. I I, I agree 100%. And... You know, on the subject of Cooper, I think that there's a moment here that is very important thematically, which is the flashback to Fire Walk With Me. And then also Jeffrey's asking Mr. C directly. It's like, we're not asking, but simply asserting you are Cooper. And then we get that really uh, striking close up of Mr. C's face where everything else is sort of darkened behind him and we just get the close up on his you know grizzled you know totally unfeeling expression and it it, it cuts to a really you know deep 
philosophical question here, which is like, if if he looks exactly like Cooper, and he apparently has all Cooper's memories because he's the one who brought up the the uh, Philadelphia office incident, like, isn't is he kind of he functionally is kind of Cooper at that point, right? Like, it's a really um, like that shot. Every time it happens, I always have the same question. It's like, at what point does at what point is he just Cooper? I don't know. Do you do you guys have any of the same feeling about that? Sort of. I, I feel I feel as if I've always actually sort of looked at him as Cooper. Just it's it's Cooper's maybe like if you take his his skill set and his uh, intellect and his it, it like all of the things that make Cooper Cooper. But it's similar to like the fire analogy. It's like all of those things are what they are and the intention behind them it makes all of the difference. So like this is the Cooper that we see in the original run with all of those same, um, all of the, that same like curiosity and, uh, and intellect and all and all and intuition and all of these things, plus a bunch of superpowers. Um, but I, I've always sort of, uh, looked at him like, yeah, like this, this is Cooper. This is just simply, um, a Cooper with a much different intention with a, from a completely different, um, with a completely different perspective on, on everything, on existence itself. And I feel like in, in like coming out of that space, uh, like in that, the finale of season two, like, uh, I don't know. It's almost, I know that Tibetan Buddhism and mythology was, uh, something that was, like referred to a lot in the original run and and there's this i don't know if i've talked about this before but in um in a lot of sects of tibetan buddhism there are these sort of in-between uh beings called bodhisattvas that are like enlightened beings that choose to stay within the uh like living realm to try and help other beings achieve enlightenment and part of that uh like whole lineage goes that each of these bodhisattvas have like a graceful form and a completely wrathful form that embodies all of the completely opposite aspects of um, like the loving kindness and, and uh, compassion and all that stuff. It sort of acknowledges that at the same time, this side of these beings exists and you can't ignore it. And I think that's something that you actually get with Mr. C uh, and it kind of like, for me widens the scope of who Cooper is and the Cooper we get in the original run and in, in the later on in the return is um, the quote unquote good guy is if we can simplify it to that point and has all of these skills and intuitions, but simply uses them to a different end that may or may not actually be good because like, as we've said, um, and as we all know from, from watching this, his, his curiosity doesn't necessarily lead him down a pure path at all. And it's one that manifested Mr. C. So that's that's sort of how I've always kind of looked at Mr. C. He is he is definitely for me Cooper. I'm in agreement. I've always felt that he is definitely Cooper. I think narratively it leads to some really interesting things that happen in the following hours where our Cooper, for lack of a better term, is faced with guilt over the actions of his dark half. He's faced with the knowledge of 
Audrey Horn and everything else that has happened over the past 25 years, which leads to his final actions and attempt to, in some ways, ease that guilt and atone for his dark half's actions by trying to change all of that. And this is definitely a, a topic that we could spend an hour talking about because it is a really deep philosophical question, like you alluded to earlier. But long story short, I do believe that it is Cooper. Yeah, and I, I think the sex scene with Diane in the finale is where a lot of that comes to a head for me, where it's like, you know, it's it's impossible not to think about the fact that, um, you know, Diane is somebody who has been victimized by Mr. C, and um, it's, I don't know, it's so... It's so complicated. I don't I, like you said. We could talk about it forever. I don't want to get into it for, for, for right now, but um, yeah, it's it's a really important important topic to to think about with regards to the season. I think. Um, so, yeah. So the other thing that happens in this scene is that uh, Mister C asks about Judy, and Philip Jeffries says, "It's like, well, you've already met Judy, and uh, you know you can go talk to Judy yourself." And he spits out some coordinates here, somewhat humorously, by forming, like, steam shapes with them. Um, which, like, I just, I don't, I don't know how they think of some of this stuff, man. It's, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, at that point, Mr. C takes out a notepad and paper, <laughs> which also threw me for a little bit of a loop, like... I didn't take Mr. C for a guy that just walks around with uh, with, with those things on him, but apparently he is. Um, he could have taken out one of those cell phones that he jacked from the people um, <laughs> from that gang, but nope, he's got a pen and yeah. pad, just like he's old school. Doesn't have the notes app, apparently. <laughs> um, so yeah, the phone starts ringing, and he goes over to it, and he picks it up, and he is teleported outside of the convenience store uh surprised richard is there and he's pointing a gun at him and uh you know says he knows who he is because you know his mother had photos of him and this is where we get confirmation of what we had pretty much already figured out by this point which is that mr c is richard's father uh richard is a uh, product of, of rape and um so basically, Mr. C disarms him in uh, one of the funniest ways I've ever seen, which is that he <laughs> like hawks a loogie and spits it on the ground, and Richard is distracted by this just long enough for Mr. C to like kick his ass. Uh, <laughs> Satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, I love this. Uh, and so they're going to go for a drive, and also... Mr. C sends a text to Diane that says Las Vegas question mark. And this is a text that we, that we see Diane receive in part 12, I believe it is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just confirming again, what we already know that the timelines in this show are extremely weird and we're not always seeing everything in a, in chronological order. Yeah. It was interesting to me when he, uh, when Mr. C, when Mr. C mentions, to Philip Jeffries, uh, he says, "Did you call me five days ago?" It kind of like made me start doing the like five days. Oh shit! Okay, like it seemed a lot longer to me. Obviously, since as the viewer, since it had been weeks since we had seen uh, that phone call. But yeah, it, it's just more screwiness with these timelines. Yeah, and then we get 
um, like I mentioned in the last scene, we get another establishing shot to close this out of the convenience store. And uh, the convenience store just sorts of, sort of fades away, which leads me to wonder, it's like, does it only appear at a certain point or does it move or I don't know. Interest, interesting to think about. Yeah, it, again, it's a lot like the red curtains in Glastonbury Grove, the way that they both just disappear, but you know the physical location of where to find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's like you just have to show up at a certain time or or even with a certain kind of mind state, you know. Um, so from there, we get a pretty uh, distressing scene here with Steven and Gersten. This is the end of, of this plot line here. The whole uh, Steven, Becky, Gersten, uh, unfortunate love triangle. And it opens with uh, Cyril Pons, uh, a.k.a. Mark Frost, uh, walking his dog through the forest. And we see that Steven and Gersten are huddled up at the base of a tree clearly high out of their minds on uh, some sort of drug maybe it's sparkle maybe it's something else who knows and steven has a gun and he's speaking in a way that implies that maybe he killed becky at least that's that's the popular theory and i i think that that's probably the case and um yeah, it's really difficult to make out a lot of the other things that Steven says here. You kind of have to turn on the subtitles to really to really get it. But he says basically just a lot of non-sequitur stuff like, um, I'm a high school graduate. Will I be with the rhinoceros, the lightning in the bottle, or will I be completely like turquoise? And he says a lot of really vulgar things to Gersten as well. Um... <sighs> Yeah, one thing I really appreciate about this scene is, A, you know, the, the landscape is just gorgeous here in the woods with the, the moss-covered trees and everything. It's a really idyllic background for this really <laughs> for this really pretty horrible scene here. And I also really enjoy the soundscape. Uh, this is actually um, a song by Thought Gang, uh, the collaborative project between David Lynch and Angelo Badalamente, who just put out an album uh, at the time of this recording like a couple weeks ago and this particular track is called summer night sound and um yeah lots of effective use of of sound and image throughout this episode and um andrew i guess i'll ask you what is your what are your parting thoughts as far as the whole becky and steven thing go I originally thought that he had killed Becky as well, but if I'm not mistaken, I believe Mark Frost and his Reddit MMA and yeah. AMA said that he did not kill Becky. Yeah. There was a Mark Frost quote somewhere. I might be wrong on the source, but I do believe Frost himself debunked that theory. Bigger picture, though, I've done a lot of writing about how I feel so much of season three was Mark Frost and David Lynch as two men of a certain age looking at the state of affairs in our country throughout their lifetime and just kind of where we are right now. I think a lot of the roadhouse scenes have to do with what I call the social commentary. And Stephen and Becky are definitely part of that commentary subplot that I refer to frequently. 
Twin Peaks is not the same town that it was in the early 90s, and we've seen these outside influences come into this town that always had bad things under the surface, but it's a lot more in our faces now, and we're seeing the byproduct of these stronger and more deadly drugs infiltrating the town, and look what's happening. I mean, Stephen, it, it, it's almost humorous the way he says he's a high school graduate, but it's also heartbreaking. You know, he's a young man who could have been something. And look where he's at right now. And it's a it's a very heartbreaking look at two young people and the state of affairs in their lives. We see Doc Hayward's daughter, who the last time we saw her was nine, ten years old playing the piano. And we had every reason to believe that she would grow up and perhaps be a doctor like her father or some other form of successful adult. And here she is in the woods trying to convince her secret lover not to kill himself after he possibly committed a homicide. And it, it's just really heartbreaking to see that. Yeah, it's just getting at this idea that gets reinforced again and again this season, which is that, in essence, the young people of Twin Peaks are completely screwed and that they are part of a, a vicious cycle that we saw a little bit of in the first run of the show, you know, particularly I think of uh, Shelley's uh, troubles with Leo and how a lot of the same mistakes that Shelley made uh, sort of in a way gets passed down to her daughter. And um, yeah, it's sad. Um, I, I, I do have one question though, which is that why would Mark Frost say that? Like why? Like it just, <laughs> Like, isn't isn't the whole point of it to be, like, somewhat ambiguous and to sort of let us draw our own conclusion about that? It just, it mystifies me that he would just go out and say, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, he didn't, he didn't kill her. Despite the fact that pretty much all of the cinematic language that we see here in this scene points to the fact that he did. I don't know. I just, I'm, I, 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 I'm questioning why he did that. If you read a lot of Mark Frost interviews, he says a lot of things. Mark Frost is definitely, not that he's loose-lipped, but he will certainly give a lot more straightforward answers than, obviously, Lynch or even Sabrina Sutherland. Um, Frost is not afraid to kind of put his stamp on things and drive a certain narrative publicly. And it's kind of, you could say the same thing about the final dossier. You know, a lot of things that could have been mysterious and could have been left to the imagination, Frost wanted to give definitive answers to, particularly in the stories that happened after season two and before season three with some of those characters that we did not see. I think that's just kind of how he operates. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's certainly true. The, the final dossier does uh, give us a lot of, of answers. It's... I, for me, it's it's sometimes it's more answers than I really want. Particularly, I think of all the stuff involving Judy and being a Sumerian demon and all the sort of stuff. I don't know. I, I I respect Mark Frost and obviously his his contribution to the series is vital. But sometimes I just really want him to like I don't know, man. Just let us let us have the mystery a little bit, you know. Like not everything has to be these straight lines and then one to one. It just I. I, I don't know. I don't like it when he he goes out and 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 says stuff like that, especially when it's clear that Lynch has gone out of his way to maintain a certain air of mystery about it. But I don't know. That's just me. People feel differently about it, I guess. 
Yeah, you and I are in absolute agreement about that, but there are certainly others that don't share our opinion. But just for the sake of this conversation, I completely agree with everything you just said. Yeah, I think I'm in that same camp where with a scene like this, which it's which is sort of intentionally ambiguous, like you had said, Nick, to say that it is most definitely not one thing almost insinuates that it, it definitely is something else which is kind of flies in the face of of what this like like you said the, what the cinematic language is actually telling us with a scene like this but i find it easy enough to just kind of let those things um let those things go and and mark frost can can say that and and to him it's not and then if if but if someone else chooses to accept that steven shot becky uh in their head cannon, then I think that the show itself allows for that really well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I agree. Um, so yeah, basically we hear a gunshot go off and at first there's a question of, well, did Steven shoot himself or did he shoot uh, this man walking through the woods with his dog? And that gets answered pretty much immediately when we see Cyril Pons show up at the Fat Trap trailer park to uh, talk with Carl Rod. And, you know, they're sort of gesturing towards Becky and Steven's trailer. And there's a close up on, on the broken window, which is, uh, you know, a pretty uh, direct symbol for, you know, the, uh, the sort of uh, domestic decay that has spread throughout this, this region. Yeah, so from there, let's go to the roadhouse where <laughs> we get a very silly scene of the house announcer turning a giant like paper volume meter all the way to the top as ZZ Top's sharp-dressed man plays in the roadhouse. I just I do love the fact that the young people of Twin Peaks are apparently equally as excited for Sharp Dressed Man, a recording of Sharp Dressed Man, as they are for Nine Inch Nails playing. I think that that's wonderful. <laughs> Sharp Dressed Man's a banger. Oh, People yeah. People go nuts for that song. <laughs> oh, yeah, without question. Um, so, yeah, from, from here we get just the most James-ish moment of the season. Just the most the most oblivious, boneheaded Jamesiness that we've seen so far here. <laughs> Where he walks up to Renee, which is a woman that we've established that he has a big crush on. The only problem is that she's there with her husband, Chuck, I believe his name is. And he goes up to say hi to Renee, and Chuck is just like, What what like what is the matter with you? Like you have a death wish? And Chuck just goes after James and just starts beating him up. And Freddy is there, and Freddy does his green glove thing and punches Chuck and his friend in the jaw and just completely incapacitates them. And I enjoy how we're meant to believe that Freddy's punch is so profoundly powerful that it causes the recording of Sharp Dressed Man to temporarily skip. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's very, uh, that's very good to me. And James is just like, oh, he immediately starts apologizing. Uh, he wants somebody to call 911. You know, these guys are really hurt. And he's apologizing to Renee. 
Like, as if who could have foreseen that something bad might happen if he walked up to a married woman that he has a crush on and starts talking to her, you know? Like, who who could have foreseen this? Um, so, yeah, so James and Freddy, they get arrested and they get thrown into the Twin Peaks jail with uh, the motley crew that we've already got in there of Chad and Nido and the drunk guy. And it's, it's a party in there now. And it's all setting up for what's going to happen in part 17. One small note, and this is a very minuscule thing, but... I really wish that it would have been Bobby and not Hawk that had, was walking James into the cell just for pure nostalgia purposes, playing on the pilot where the two of them were locked up in opposing cages in the pilot episode. Mm-hmm. I watched part 15 a few hours ago in preparation for this. And as I watched Hawk put James in his cell and Bobby put Freddie in his cell, I just thought to myself, like, oh, like, I just wish it would have been reversed just for that weird little nostalgic moment that Twin Peaks nerds like myself would have really appreciated. Yeah, I had the same thought, actually. I would have really appreciated just a little moment of recognition here, uh, you know, between Bobby and James, like, I don't know, just to sort of uh, draw attention to the fact that we, you know, we're these are the same characters that we saw in, in the pilot, you know, the way that the tables have turned is, is, um, is kind of interesting. So yeah, that's it for this roadhouse segment. We're not quite done with the roadhouse yet, but, uh, that's it, uh, for this episode for the James and Freddie plot line. Let's head out to Las Vegas where, Detectives Wilson and Mackley are doing their best to try to find Dougie Jones. And as we've established in the last episode, there are something like 23 Douglas Joneses in the Las Vegas area. And Wilson, he has somebody who he believes to be Dougie Jones. And uh, he tells Detective Mackley that, oh, all the kids are there. And Mackley is like, kids, uh? kids uh uh knowing of course that dougie only has sunny jim and we get just that hilarious shot of him poking his head and just seeing like all the the babies crying and whatnot (laughs) i really enjoy that um yeah and i also like from the behind the scenes stuff take a drink because i'm talking about the behind the scenes stuff um (laughs) i really enjoy lynch working with the baby here to try and make it do a like a crying sound have you have you seen this andrew I have. Yeah, I, I really, I really like this. He, he's sort of like trying to coax this, this, uh, this baby into making it do just the right sound, like just the right combination of like mad and sad and without looking too happy. It's just, it's just kind of funny to me. Um, but yeah, uh, so there's that. Uh, immediately afterwards, sticking around in Las Vegas, Chantal very shockingly and abruptly uh, walks into Duncan Todd's office and kills Duncan Todd and Roger. Uh, So yeah, that's it for (laughs) the Duncan Todd plotline. Good night, sweet prince. (laughs) And it's one of many examples in this show of characters of ill repute being dispatched with quite unceremoniously. And in fact, in the next episode 
Chantal herself is going to meet a similar fate at the hands of the Polish accountant. You know, we've we've talked on this podcast before about how David Lynch sort of tells you what he thinks of characters by the ways that he kills them off. And it's very telling that in this episode, we get uh, just uh, the most like unsentimental killing of a, of a character in, in the same episode where we, where we get the uh, very moving and touching farewell to the log lady. Yeah. I also found, um, found it almost somewhat humorous. The, it's a it's a pretty shoddy cgi uh image when duncan Todd gets hit in the head it's like mm-hmm. a ps2 graphics compared to the like very visceral up close uh frothing at the mouth face of the guy that freddie just punched <laughs> it's like you get this one character that you have don't care about in any sense at all uh and you get to see them suffering intensely and then you get this one moment of Duncan Todd's head getting shot in half and it looking like uh like barely put together but but yeah I I, I think that we we can read a, a lot into like how certain characters go out like of course like Richard and um and plenty of other characters throughout this this return the return where um this like Twin Peaks isn't a show where characters die all that often um and so when they do and how they do is actually it's it's generally quite an important uh thing and so this um this also reminded me of course of um Mr. C telling Hutch and Chantal uh, about their double header in Vegas and I had some weird thoughts about that before but um I I had totally forgotten about the scene so like I was I I watched this again uh, this morning I was like totally caught uh by surprise again just because of how abrupt it is yeah, and so immediately after this hit, Hutch and Chantal enjoy some burgers and they talk leisurely about sort of the, the hypocrisy of the U.S. government killing people uh, for their own purposes all, all the while. It's, it's illegal for them to murder somebody, you know, uh, you know as, as Hutch puts it, you know, government does it all the time. And um, yeah, and they talk about how uh, you know the settlers killed the Native Americans and all this sort of stuff. And uh, Chantal is very upset that she hasn't gotten to torture anyone lately. And she's also upset that they gave her those little ketchup packets that she hates. Th- those two things are equally distressing to, to Chantal. <laughs> um, she so. asked for extra ketchup right after she hits Duncan Todd, so it was clearly on her mind. Yep. Yep. So yeah, that's that's it for them in this episode. Um, not really too much to comment on. It's just another one of these Tarantino esque moments of you know hitmen before and after a job, uh, sort of reveling in in the mundanity of of everyday life. And from there, we go to the Jones household, where. Dougie is eating chocolate cake, as he is wont to do often in this season. And Janie E is sort of... she's She has a light about her now. Like, Janie E has come all the way from the beginning of the season where she is just exasperated by Dougie and really resents everything that 
she has to deal with with regards to Dougie. And now that Dougie has proven himself to be a boon to their family, she is just full of love for him and tells him that all their dreams are coming through. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the degree to which Dougie is sort of a weirdly passive protagonist who nevertheless manages to have a really profound effect on the action of this series um andrew do you uh do you this is going to be the last that we see of dougie in this scene do you do you have any parting thoughts for for dougie jones i was a big fan of the dougie character especially in hindsight in a show that did deal with so much heavy content dougie was this lightness and uh like like you alluded to janie was just so happy and you know just so emotionally fulfilled by a lot of things in her life and dougie as it's been well discussed prior he brought a lot of goodness to people's life and i once i realized that dougie was not going away quickly and that we were not going to get cooper back you know in part five or six i did start to embrace the dougie character when we saw the outlet and we realized that things were coming full circle from part three it was like okay well we're moving on part of me expected to not see him at all in 16 which obviously was not the case but there was a little bit of sadness of knowing okay well we're we're not going to see dougie anymore even though we're getting back our hero character i also really loved the dougie character and and and, and similar to like andrew was saying it sort of grew to love him the more you realized he was going to stick around I, I, of all of the, the the fake outs that we had along the way, this uh, when you hear the words Gordon Cole on the on the TV, uh, Dougie makes a a face different than any other face he's made. Uh, it is truly this like like light bulb going off. Um, but I, when I saw him moving towards the outlet, um, I, I I thought we were gonna get a. Um, a resolution then then and there so the the going the rest of the episode it was almost like the anticipation of wanting to know what was going to happen with that was almost like overriding a lot of stuff but i i have to say i'm i'm proud of dougie and i think he uh he reached a certain level of intelligence when he realized <laughs> he couldn't get the fork in the outlet uh, the prongs way. So he, in the most ingenious move Dougie's made, he flips that thing around perfectly mm. fits directly in. It is uh, that for me was the sign. I was like, he learned he is, he is smart. He is, he's, uh, he's finally, he's finally going to make his way out of this. Yes. He learned to do exactly one thing. And that is, that is character growth for Dougie Jones yep. over the course of these whatever 12 episodes or what have you. How to properly electrocute yourself with an outlet and a fork by Dougie Jones. Yes, yes, this very Twin Peaksian task. Yeah, we Dylan and I are very much on record as being big fans of Dougie in general here and particularly on rewatch, I am just more and more appreciative of what he brought to this season. I think it was an incredible gambit that Lynch and Frost made to turn Cooper into this sort of zombified, uh, unresponsive comic relief uh, character. Um, it, it really, like you said, Andrew, there's so much of this season that is pretty awful in terms of, of content. And there's just a lot of darkness in general. And, I 
I really gravitate now more so at the time to these moments of levity with Dougie. You know, some of my favorite moments from the season are uh, some of these moments that we get with Dougie Jones, which wasn't necessarily the case as I was watching it because, you know, the first time through, there's this whole tension of really, really wanting Cooper back and wondering, is this going to be the moment that he shows up? Is this going to be it? Is this going to be the episode? And now that I'm no longer fixated on that, I'm much more able to appreciate the Dougie plot line for what it is. And I think it was probably the single gutsiest thing that Lynch and Frost did with this season. And in my opinion, it was uh, a real stroke of genius. I I really am a big fan of Dougie Jones here. Absolutely agreed. To have Mr. C be the character that he was, to represent the evil that he did, you had to have Dougie Jones be what he was. You had to have that balance between good and evil, that char- that half of Cooper that was doing nothing but causing destruction, taking what he wanted, and hurting anyone in his path, and then that part of Cooper that did nothing but better the lives of those around him. What we ultimately get is a combined human being that is in the middle, that has his flaws, but ultimately does want what's best for people. We had to see those extreme sides of him. During rewatches, I know I appreciate that a lot more. I was just like everybody else. I I wanted classic Agent Cooper back, but I'm glad that I got to a place where I could really appreciate Dougie for what he was. And like you said, it's it was a big gamble on the part of Lynch and Frost to take their main character and to put him in these roles, one of them where he could only repeat words and was comic relief. And, you know, for a long time, we're going to be uttering the catchphrases, hello, and Mr. Jackpots and all of those things. But the gamble really paid off. It was a it was a beautiful storyline to see Cooper divided like that and to, to break down our hero character into those two elements, pure good and pure evil, and to have those two elements run parallel with each other throughout a majority of these 18 hours before the eventual resolution came. It was a stroke of genius. Yeah, yeah, really, really amazing stuff, you know, in hindsight that they were able to, to pull this off. Just super impressive. And, you know, again, we haven't praised Kyle McLaughlin enough recently on this show, but... Boy, he he is truly funny as Dougie. I I really appreciate the the level of commitment that he brought to this character. And to me, I I can just imagine that he and Lynch must have just been having a ball shooting some of these scenes here because they're just uh they're so silly and just so much fun. So yeah, Dougie Jones. Um, you know, just just one more thing about the scene here. I appreciate that Lynch decided to give a shout out to his favorite movie, Sunset Boulevard. Obviously, the character Gordon Cole was the inspiration for his Gordon Cole. And I appreciate this notion of using cinema as a means to sort of wake up or uh, achieve a certain enlightenment. You know, it's it's something that we, we have seen in, in Lynch before, even in this season. I, I think of, uh, you know, Andy sort of watching all of these all of these Twin Peaks symbols and coming to an understanding. 
and the firemen in his house watching the events of the atomic bomb and the birth of Bob unfold, you know, on a literal movie screen in a theater. And Mm -hmm. uh, this is just one more example of that. And I I like that a lot. I had actually never seen Sunset Boulevard uh, when I first saw this episode air. So in the week between parts 15 and 16, I watched it for the first time and absolutely fell in love with it. I've probably seen it three times since then. Uh, What a great, what a great flick. Oh yeah. Yeah. One of the all time greats for sure. One of the most popular articles on 25 years later was written by a man named Doug Cunningham um, to give, to give my shout out here where he looked at the film sunset Boulevard and all of its many comparisons to twin peaks. And there was a lot more than met the eye, you know, obviously Gordon Cole's what jumps out at everybody, but I think Doug did a really good job of analyzing how closely related those projects are. And like I said, it, it, to this day, it remains one of the most popular articles we've ever published. Yeah. So that's it for Dougie. And now we get to a scene that I guess we knew was coming at the time, but the way that Lynch devotes so much time to it and the tenderness with which he portrays it, um, really kind of destroyed me at the time. It's the farewell to the log lady and starts off. We get another one of these scenes with her on the phone with Hawk. And she says a lot of typically poetic stuff to Hawk on the phone here. I'm a big fan of just the, the prose of what, of what the log lady says this season. And she has some beautiful lines here as well, where she says, um, you know, watch for that one, the one I told you about, the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. My log is turning gold. The wind is moaning. And just one thing I want to point out here is that I've seen some people express a little bit of confusion or even a little bit of resentment towards Hawk here because he's not really responding to her. He's not really trying to comfort her or anything like that. But I just want to say, like, I have like a totally opposite take where he is bearing witness to the last words of this dying woman. And to me, he's just sort of letting her say her piece and showing her the ultimate respect by doing so. You know, I don't get any sort of coldness from him at all. You know, I just, I, I, to me on his face, I just see, you know, the, the deepest, most profound respect and admiration. Yeah, I'd say it's a misreading to say that he's being cold. Uh, he's being reverent. He's being stoic because he is uh, cognizant of 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 what what's happening. You know, she like you said, she's speaking her piece, and he is allowing her to do so and saying only what needs to be said, which I think a character like Hawk has always done, and that's 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 actually sort of how he is how he has corresponded with her throughout the return like it's consistent he has always had that very uh okay margaret thank you margaret good night margaret um because he understands that the transmission he's getting from her like that is enough it's it's so he i think he responded appropriately and i would even say that it to me it, it added to it because it was this i felt a solidarity with hawk where i i too could only just sit there and listen and take it in um and be moved by it mm-hmm yeah, I agree. Like Hawk is sort of standing in for the audience at that point where we're just 
you know, we're just, we're, we're listening intently and we're, um, you know, just being very, very attentive in absorbing what this woman has to say. And after they get off the phone, we get a shot of the inside of the, I guess it's the evidence room or the the conference room in, in the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. And Hawk calls in Frank, Bobby, Andy, and, uh, who else? Oh yeah. And, um, uh, sorry, Lucy to give them the news that Margaret Landerman has passed away. And, uh, we get the Angelo Battlementi music going here. I believe it's the fireman, um, that, that composition that we're going to hear a few times here in this season. And, you know, Kimmy Robertson, her tears in this scene looked very real to me. You know, it's like this is probably the the most uh, probably the most real that we've ever seen Lucy here when she says, "Oh, the log lady is dead," and um, you know she's she's clearly been crying a lot. I don't know. That's that's just my feeling about it. Yeah, I'd agree. And um, I guess as an as an actress, she works really well candidly because there's that famous moment from the original run where Cooper throws the rock uh, at the bottle and hits it. And she exclaims, you hit it, you hit it, which was apparently her genuine reaction. So, but if she's not, if she's not uh, actually crying, then, then she's doing a damn good job faking it. But who wouldn't have tears in their eyes uh, filming a scene like that, especially with the real world context. And we all knew that it was art imitating life as we watched it. Obviously we knew Catherine had passed on, what I didn't realize until I started to do more cast and crew interviews for the site was exactly how close it, this, these situations really were. Filming that scene in Catherine's death three days apart and Lynch having the conversation with the cast and crew so close in proximity to that scene being filmed, the timelines were – they were uh, – couldn't have been planned any better in terms of general like in terms of getting reactions you know and also hearing from some of the cast and crew how close Catherine was to actually being able to come film which obviously was not the case as they had to send a skeleton crew to her home when they realized like no she's in her final days here it's tough um the cast and crew that i've spoke with in interviews have been very emotional about the subject. You know, there's still tears that are flowing a few years later. Catherine was such a vital part of everyone's life that knew her. And the log lady, her character, had that same power, that same role within the community. She was, she binded them together. And it was a very, I don't want to say traumatic, but it was a very difficult experience for everyone that was involved to to know that she was dying and then to have that play out on screen and just those weird conflicting feelings of what's real and what's my job. And we see a lot of genuine emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I'm sure a lot of people are aware, um, Catherine Coulson was a huge part of Lynch's life and career. They were very close friends and collaborators um, you know, dating back all the way to the Eraserhead days where she was, uh, I believe, a production assistant uh, of some sort. And 
really stuck with Lynch throughout the entirety of the filming of that movie, which I think took quite a long time, like spread out over the course of five years or something like that. So um, she was there from the beginning with Lynch. And um, you can tell that Lynch really put his heart and soul into wanting to pay tribute to her. We get just a really uh, beautiful and poignant shot here of the exterior of her house and the lights going dim. And that's it. That's it for the log lady. Um, obviously a very important character to the, just the identity of the show. Obviously the, the log lady intros are canon for a lot of people. I didn't, when I first watched Twin Peaks, I didn't see them, but I've since gone back and watched them and I, I, <laughs> I really enjoy them. And I'm sure that for the people who experienced the show with them, for the first time that you know it's she's a very important character in the show another pretty jarring transition here to the chaos of our uh sorry of audrey and charlie they are at this point at the door they've moved from charlie's office all the way to the front door where they are apparently about to leave for the roadhouse where Audrey is convinced that she is going to find Billy, uh, which she's been talking about for several scenes now. And Charlie's got his coat on. He seems like he's ready to go to the roadhouse. Uh, and they have this argument in which Audrey repeatedly compares Charlie to Billy and says that you know she doesn't really she doesn't really know charlie and she feels like she's just now seeing who he truly is for the first time and all this sort of stuff and charlie is <laughs> the way that he's speaking to audrey is almost like it's very condescending it's almost like she's a child he does these very deliberate motions with his hands like, where it's almost like he's putting brackets around whatever he says. Like, I am Charlie, and he is Billy. And, like, he talks to her like she's still a, a rebellious teenager. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, she's she's been stuck in suspended animation from when we last saw her, almost. Yeah, and it ends with him deciding to take off his coat, and Audrey attacks him and chokes him and tells him how much she hates him, etc. Um... Andrew, I guess without getting into like the, I don't know, the the grand scope of it, because we could talk about Audrey and Charlie for like literally an entire episode, but what are your feelings about this scene here and about where, where Audrey is at in terms of uh, her mind state and where she is uh, in terms of like the, the overall, like the narrative of this show? To keep it focused on part 15, I really saw a woman fighting. I saw a woman that desperately wanted to get beyond where she was currently at, and you could look at that as in a physical sense of wanting to leave the house and get to the roadhouse, or you could look at that from a mental perspective. The aggression that she showed towards Charlie, Audrey was fighting. Audrey was trying to escape this predicament that she was in. One of the most telling lines in this back and forth here in part 15 was Charlie. Uh, he referenced the threshold when they were trying to get out the door. And that was one of mm -hmm. those first times that I thought, like, okay, maybe she really is trapped in some kind of uh, 
psychological prison. You know, maybe maybe this is a traumatic effect from years past and she's trying to escape it. But my biggest takeaway here was just that desperation she seemed to have and that aggression of wanting to escape the situation she was in, of wanting to move on to where she felt she needed to be. And it did give me a little bit of hope for the character seeing her attack him. You know, like you said, he was very condescending to her and she seemed like she was really fighting back. And that made me think like, okay, Audrey's making progress on some kind of psychological level. She's at least defending herself. I, I too noticed the word threshold and it stuck out to me like a sore thumb. Uh, and it sort of validated a lot of feelings that I had that were similar, that this was not necessarily a literal place and instead some kind of um, psychological allegory for where Audrey Horn is at, at, at presently. But I, I've I watched looking back on it or on this rewatch, I really I appreciate the pacing of the Audrey storyline more than I did the first time around. I think maybe because like everyone the first time around I was just tr busy trying to make sense of it and I still am trying to make sense of it but the the pacing like as they get closer and closer to the door um Audrey's goes through a range of of emotions and temperaments and ultimately it comes to this head with her attacking Charlie um but Charlie is has always to me felt like a somewhat of a gatekeeper and that's how he's acting and he is sort of this symbol of um, uh, of Audrey being stuck and trapped in this in this whatever it is, and part of the whole um this whole scene of them standing near the threshold, to me read of like maybe Audrey's anxieties about uh having the autonomy to walk through that door and and find out you know where she really is or get out of this prison, uh, almost as if she has been sort of psychologically trained to to keep herself there because charlie does not ever physically stop her from leaving this whole thing happens at the level of language and manipulation so to see her uh, in a frustrated rage I, I i also like read it as a a moment of growth for for this character or like a sign of progress that she is getting closer and closer to getting out that door uh, even though I wasn't really sure exactly what was on the other side of it or if they were actually going to go to the roadhouse or, or what any of that would amount to. Uh, but this time around, the pacing, um, I, I'm, I'm just able to, uh, I don't know. I think uh, I think it's just has a bit, it makes a little bit more sense to me, not in like a, a literal way, but in more of like a thematic way. It, it's it's uh, You're seeing a character get closer and closer and closer towards this actualization um and then you're also witnessing their anxiety about having to go through with that which i think is um it's a very complex uh situation and i think that it, it what we see on the screen uh facilitates that very well audrey here i think is just a really sad depiction of a, a woman who feels trapped in this marriage that she is unhappy with and who is idealizing the roadhouse to a degree where she feels like the roadhouse for whatever reason is going to be her her ticket out of the state you know the roadhouse is somebody or is somewhere that she believes uh her lover billy is who as she repeatedly says is much preferable to her than her controlling 
condescending, gaslighting husband. And as we've seen, the Roadhouse also has people who are sort of tangential in her life. You know, just this whole Billy, Tina thing uh, extends beyond just the ambiguously real um, scenes that we get here with Audrey and Charlie into the Roadhouse. Uh, And it's just, it's a really interesting device to try to try to use the roadhouse as sort of the symbol for breaking free and getting out of this life where you know she's stuck in a, in a marriage that she's unhappy with and she's given birth to this uh this horrible monster of a man uh which has presumably been a contributing factor to her her, her demise and mm-hmm. um i don't know just the very complex way that these things are represented in, in, in the show is just is always gonna is always gonna fascinate me. Speaking of the roadhouse, uh let's head there for the last scene of this episode. Uh here we see the Veils performing the song Axolotl, which is produced by the great LP from Run the Jewels fame. Yeah, I like this song. I think it's really appropriate for the action that takes place here in the Roadhouse. The lyrics are a little bit silly, I will say. You know, with like accidental amphibian. I'm growing giddy as a Gideon and whatnot, but I, I really do think that the 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 general feeling of this song is very appropriate for what we see here. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of David Lynch's uh, solo music. Uh, I forgot the name of the record, but it does have, it's almost like a dark hip hop kind of, kind of feeling that um, I I couldn't help but think about what, what John was saying on the last episode about there being maybe two roadhouses uh, or, or two representations of the roadhouse, one of them representing the light and one of them representing the darkness. And uh, I thought that if this was a clear example, um, counter to the one from from part 14 where it is a lot of yellow lights and and brightness and this song is very um or the i can't remember her name but the the song from the last episode is very upbeat and poppy and then here we get this kind of more um intense kind of uh darker sound and we also have some strobe light effects and other things that are consistent with more some of the more negative aspects that we see on this show and then we have some big buff greaser dudes um in, in a kind of a silly way removing uh ruby from her from her booth but just sort of like bullying her and, and taking the space for their own um seems to run counter to some of the the other roadhouse scenes that we've seen in general terms of the like the vibe that you get yeah i, I this might be my favorite of the closing roadhouse scenes that we get in this season i just to me it's such a such a stark depiction of of despair of this woman who has been literally displaced by these two large (laughs) jerks um, that that literally pull her off uh from the the roadhouse booth here and, and set her down and you know nobody's trying to help her Nobody seems to even notice her, even as she is on all fours, 
crawling hands and knees towards the stage and you know there's this pretty menacing soundtrack going on and you know she's just crawling ever ever closer to to what we don't know uh and then she just lets out that that scream uh and then the lights go off which obviously is uh a motif that is going to become significant in the finale. And also we actually saw earlier mm-hmm. in this episode where Dougie sticks the fork and the electrical socket and Janie E screams as all the lights yep. go out. Uh, and this scene has a parallel with that scene in more ways than one, because as many people have pointed out, her crawling towards the stage uh, follows a very similar uh, rhythm and and length to Dougie crawling towards the electrical socket. And so, I don't know, it's just like all of these sort of vague connections working in a concert that make me really appreciate this scene here just like on a filmmaking level. Yeah, I, I'd agree. And also the way that we get a lot of shots, like double exposures and things like, like the walking down the hallway and the Dutchman's overlapping with the forest, I think we, we're most certainly are getting scenes which could overlap with one another that we're witnessing separately, like this one in the Dougie Jones scene or like Lara flying away uh, in the red room versus Lara disappearing in, in the finale, uh, which is, is consistent with a lot of this sort of timeline business that we've, we've dealt with. But um, yeah, I, I, but I also think just the attention to detail and also the, uh, the way that you can take certain actions and then recontextualize them and reframe them to create a a uh, a completely different effect is, like you said, just like a really masterful uh, use of filmmaking and something that you just really you don't really get, or at least I I haven't really got from a lot of other for sure TV shows, episodic TV shows, um, but even it, it's it's rare to come by in film, and and it's when you see it you really. It, you, it's worth it to take pause and appreciate it. I was always really struck by the image of Ruby crawling around on the floor on all fours, begging for help and nobody noticing the situation that she was in. Everyone just completely oblivious to her and her struggle there and the, just the obvious emotional outpouring that was coming from her. Nobody around her seemed to care. And I just always thought, like, okay, maybe this is just, like, a little bit of social commentary until it dawned on me after finishing the series that it was very reminiscent to Laura Palmer. Laura Palmer was a character who was screaming out, acting out for years and years and years because she was in pain and nobody seemed to notice. And then there's the whole motif of the scream and the lights going out at the end. Um, Not that I think that she was written to be like a direct comparison to Laura Palmer by any means, but I just found that to be an interesting parallel. Yeah. So that's pretty much the end of this episode. Um, the only thing that's left is that we get the credits rolling over this, um, this motel, uh, courtyard space, which I don't know. Did we mention, I think we might've forgotten to mention before that this is the same motel from Firewalk with me that Leland visits. This is where it ends, and I actually didn't see this the first time through, but as the credits are ending, there's sort of a last-second cut to the quote-unquote bosomy woman that we saw earlier just sort of standing in the shadow. It's like Silent Hill. 
or it's like like a like PT. It was it was just like a very. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I think I did notice it the first time around, um, or maybe I noticed the cut and didn't notice the woman, but I knew to look for it this time, and it was no no less creepy <laughs> uh, on a, on the re- subsequent reruns. Yeah, it's almost like sort of a J horror vibe. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's good. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, I just wonder if this is—is um, it meant to simply be like an evocative image, or are we sort of trying? Are we, are we being intentionally reminded of uh, like that—that that courtyard being part of this like metaphysical space, or just making a note that, uh, or like metaphysical space above the convenience store, or um, or something? It just reminded me of like of all the things that happened in this episode um it can be easy to forget like that whole sequence and all of the really uh the questions that it raises as far as like who is that lady and why is it uh why are we being shown her again at the end of all of this uh seemed rather important to me yeah so that's gonna do it for this again fantastic episode i mean my god just great scene after great scene uh just lynch at the absolute top of his game here uh, just my goodness this is oof this is good stuff guys all right all in agreement apparently uh yes <laughs> yeah so... no it is it is it's like um, this whole like you said each episode gets better and better and better but the mm-hmm. way that previous episodes or or i should say earlier episodes on the run have like a bit of a scattershot feel to them these these like last six or seven episodes really do have just like big meaty sections that like you can just really dig into and it's a it's a great ride and i can't wait to keep going yeah we're just we're really honing down to just the the core the core elements of the show like the the Cooper of it all and the Mr. C of it all and, and everything like that. So yeah, to uh, use the 18 hour film comparison, you know, we're in the third act of the film and we're at the point now where everything really is starting to tighten narratively. And that's kind of my take on the, uh, the closing credits with the courtyard too, almost as if the, the danger of the mythological elements of the show was closing in on the characters. You know, it was, it was an unsettling feeling to not see the credits that we were used to and to get this spooky image. The danger was closing in on us just as if we were closing in on the key elements of the plot and the narrative with now only three hours left to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's definitely a good read on it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us for this episode. We, we really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun for me. I appreciate you guys asking me to come on. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, everybody should read 25 Years Later. It's it's a fantastic site. If you like Twin Peaks, um, you, you really owe it to yourself to, to delve into some of the writing that, that is there. Um, so, yeah, check that out. And uh, people can find you on Twitter at, it's just Andrew Grievous, correct? Yes, for my personal account, it's just at Andrew Grievous, or for the site, it's at 25YL site. And then we also have, uh, on Facebook as well, and then we have our Facebook group and page for the site as well. Right, yep. So yeah, uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at 119podcast. You can find me personally, Nick, at 
Strenuous Orb, and you can find Dylan at Piff Dylan. Uh, if you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, go ahead and leave us a rate and a review on iTunes. Uh, it helps more people find the show. And uh, if you have anything to say, uh, you can write into us at 119podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's it for this episode. We sounds like we're going to have a, a pretty cool guest lined up next week for episode 16. Uh, so yeah, we, we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, thanks, guys. Later. Bye.